Thank you for listening to this teaching from the prayer room. For more teachings, notes, downloads, or to subscribe to our podcast, as well as information about who we are and our upcoming events, visit our website at tprdfw.com. All right. Well, Lord, we thank you so much for the Word of God, and we are just so blessed to have it and to be able to learn from your Word. And we pray tonight that you would anoint the Word of God, that it would speak to us, that it would minister Lord, we ask you to raise us up as forerunners that understand the hour that we're living in and what's coming next, that we will be a people who are committed to the word and that have the word burning within us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Book of Revelation, uh, tonight's session is entitled, When Heaven Comes to Earth. Now, for those of you who are just joining us, we're doing a thematic study of the book of Revelation, so that's a little different than going verse by verse. We're looking at uh, various subjects and themes, one theme at a time, and tonight we're looking at the, the subject of what is it like when heaven comes to earth? What is meant by that? What is, what is the activity of that? What's going to be going on in that? And so uh, anyway, so that's where we're at as we uh, jump in. I want to uh, begin... Uh, in uh, Roman numeral one here in the notes, if you've got them, and uh, they're also available online if you want to get the digital copy. They're on our website under the uh, recent teachings uh, tab. But uh, I want to point out the, the subject of heaven coming to earth. We're actually talking about the first time in fullness that the kingdom of God has come to the earth. Now, we have the kingdom of God with us right now in part, but it is a very small part by comparison to what is coming, even what has been prophesied, even what has been prayed again and again. Just think about how hijacking this prayer is that the Lord dropped into our our midst, into our culture. When he said, this then is how you should pray, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Right now, when we pray that, we get to see pieces, we get to see partial manifestations of the kingdom of God invading the non-kingdom of God. We get to see the kingdom of God exploding like like light in the midst of darkness. Whenever we get to see uh, a salvation, we pray for someone, we prophesy, we, uh, we see someone healed, we see the kingdom of God invading the kingdom of darkness. But we're going to experience a time in the future where the kingdom of God is going to literally come to the earth. And it's going to be the most powerful and profound thing. This is all part of the Father's mysterious plan. I just, uh, I love this phrase, this concept that Paul gave us a couple of times in, uh, in the epistles. Here in Ephesians 1, it says this, having made known to us the mystery of his will, according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in himself, that in the dispensation of the fullness of times, he might gather together in one all things in Christ, both which are in heaven and which are on earth. Now, to gather all things in heaven and all things on earth together in the fullness of what that means can only mean heaven and earth being in the same place. And that's exactly what's going to happen. Heaven is actually literally coming to earth. It's wonderful though, you start off with this this beautiful phrase, made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure. That it's a mystery in his heart, and it's his good mysteries. It's his good pleasure. It's been his, his good pleasure to have this in his heart, but it's also been his good pleasure to keep it a mystery and to keep it veiled only to reveal it pieces at a time. And here Paul says, we now can at least identify the great mystery of God's heart. What is it? What is it? The Father longs to bring heaven and earth together into one reality. That is the mystery of his will. That he has this in his heart to do this. We are headed for the literal, the real-time application of this verse. A time is coming when we're going to see this uh, come to be. Well, Jesus gave us some phrases throughout the Gospels that help us to understand this mystery of God a little bit. Jesus would frequently refer to 
the renewal of all things. Look at this. Jesus replied, to be sure Elijah comes and will restore all things. Matthew 19, 28. Jesus said to them, I tell you the truth, at the renewal of all things, when the Son of Man sits on his glorious throne, Acts 3.21, he must remain in heaven until the time comes for God to restore everything. I don't know if you're catching the, the trend here. It's all about God putting back into right order everything that has been put into wrong order. It's a restoring, a renewal, a, a returning to right. And, and so this is Jesus talking about it. Now we've got here in the book of Acts talking about the very purposes of the Lord that God is going to restore everything as he promised long ago through his holy prophets. Isaiah 49, this is one of those holy prophets that was uh, being referred to here. Isaiah 49 verse 8, this is what the Lord says. In the time of my favor, I will answer you. And in the day of my salvation, I will help you. I will keep you. And I will make you to be a covenant for the people to restore the land and to reassign its desolate inheritances. This is part of the restoring of all things. It's not the fullness of it, but it's part of that restoration, part of that renewal of all things. This renewal of all things is dynamically related to the mystery of God's will, the bringing together of heaven and earth. I just want you to think about how different it is to bring heaven and earth than last Tuesday. I mean, whatever happened last week was very, very different than the day God will literally bring heaven and earth in fullness together. That's not a spiritual statement. It's an accurate one. It's one that the book of Revelation actually describes the process of what will it be like when the renewal of all things happens? What will it be like when the mystery of God's will that all things in heaven and earth would be brought together? What is it like? What does that day look like when that actually literally occurs? It's a, it's a big subject in the book of Revelation and it's actually one that we want to set our hearts on. You know, We've got some real troubles down here. There are trials on every side. I mean, there's, there are uh, too many to list that are part of our daily reality that has actually been assigned to us as saints in this age that we would get to live in the midst of all that pinch, in the midst of all that difficulty. But one of the ways that we navigate that difficulty is we set our eyes on things above and not on earthly things. We think about our blessed hope, the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, and all that comes with him. We set our gaze, not on our hope, not on this life and its failing systems and its, its issues and, and all, the, all the problems. Instead, we set our gaze into the next age, and we imagine and we think and we, we desire the thing that God says is the mystery of his will. We give ourselves to that and go, well, if it's a mystery in your will, and if you have good purposes related to this, I want to root myself in that reality, not root myself in the day-to-day -day and the pains and the ache. This age is fleeting. This hour that we live in, it actually will come and go, but the things that we read about in God's mysterious plan of bringing heaven and earth together, that will be reality for humanity forever. It's actually a truer, more real version of the universe than even the one that we live in. And by rooting ourselves in the hope of what is coming, we actually gain strength to put up with all the difficulty and the ache and the not yet that's in this age. Heaven descends to earth in two phases. I'm going to give you uh, number two here. Now we're going to really focus on the book of Revelation at this point, reading some of these verses. Uh, Roman numeral two, heaven descends to earth in two phases, page two. The first thing that happens, and this might be a big surprise to you, but the end time drama has this interesting interaction between heaven and earth. It's partial, then it's a little bit more, then it's a lot more, then it's fullness, the subject of the end times, you could actually call the interaction between heaven and earth. There is a significant interaction. In fact, the most upgraded interaction that the earth has ever experienced is all occurring during the end time drama and beyond. It's this dynamic relationship between heaven and earth. Because remember, it's the mystery of God's will to bring these two things together. So he's not in a hurry. He doesn't do it all in one second. 
Actually, the end time judgments are all part of the preparation work to bring heaven to earth. The end time judgments, the the, uh, open visions that people are going to get to see of heaven, it's all part of bringing heaven to earth. There is a dynamic relationship to the end times, to the subject of heaven and earth being brought together. I share that with you because that might be an interesting and beneficial lens to read eschatology through. To be thinking about the end time drama as actually the entire storyline of accomplishing the mystery of God's will to bring all things in heaven and earth together into one reality. The end time drama is necessary in order to make that happen in its fullness. And the end time drama as it unfolds is actually little windows and pictures and pieces of that reality occurring. Now, let's talk about the physical city of heaven coming to earth. It happens in two phases, okay? Kind of break this down for you uh, in the, uh, related to the second coming of Christ. So the first time that heaven shows up, it is significant. I mean, significant's the wrong word. It's, it's the most incredible thing man will have ever experienced, ever seen. It will be the most beautiful, most dynamic interaction. It just so happens it's going to get even cooler a minute later. So that's the reason I'm using significant. That's just an inadequate word. Every word you want to use except the word complete because it's not complete in its first installment. What happens is a significant but partial first descent of the new Jerusalem out of wherever it is in the cosmos to come into view of those on the planet. Look what it says here. Revelation 21, 9 through 10. Come. And I will show you the bride, the wife of the lamb. And he carried me away in the spirit to a mountain great and high. And he showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. So get the picture here. John is now getting to experience uh, a, a future reality moment for other people. And that is he is brought to this high mountain. And from this high mountain, he can see the new Jerusalem, the city of heaven, descending out of the heavens, out of the cosmos, out of the atmosphere. He can see it descending. It doesn't come rest on the earth, but he can see it descending from far off. Now, part of what's occurring here, and we're going to look at this subject of the two descents of new Jerusalem. We're going to look at that a bit more in depth in future sessions because it's going to be required that we do in order to understand what does heaven's interaction with earth look like for the thousand-year reign of Jesus. The thousand-year reign of Christ, there is going to be dynamic interaction between heaven and earth, and we're going to spend a whole uh, session talking about that subject. Part of what occurs here that's just a beautiful uh, fulfillment of prophecy, or rather another layer of fulfillment, because this is the verse that just keeps on giving, is Isaiah 9-7, the prophet Isaiah said, of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. Jesus will have just established himself as king on the earth, and now the kingdom of heaven of which he has been king knowingly, everybody in heaven knows he's king. Most people on earth right now do not know Jesus is king. They are in for some rude awakening moments here in the coming decades. They don't know, but in heaven, everybody does know Jesus will have just established himself as king on the earth. The greatest um, upgrade of the government of God on earth in human history. The greatest upgrade, the greatest leap forward. He will have just done that. And then right after that, the city of heaven of which he also governs descends. And now we've got dynamic interaction for the next thousand years of that city, the city of New Jerusalem, and the earth below. Now, one of the reasons I'm saying it that way is because there are so many verses, we'll get into them in in future sessions, there are so many verses that talk about the activity of the saints, the activity of cities, the activity of people and leaders that require heaven to be close but not on the planet during the millennial reign. There, I would say there's probably 10 to 12 verses that I can just think of right off the top of my head that describe the activity during the millennium, the thousand-year reign of Jesus, describe the activity in the millennium in such a way that make it clear heaven is nearby, but heaven is not resting on the planet. 
But after the millennium, oh, look what it says then. This is now Revelation 21, 2 through 4. This is now John seeing what happens when heaven comes to rest on earth in a physical way. Now it says, I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, now... The dwelling of God is with men, and he will live with them. He will wipe away, or he will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. There is so much activity during the millennium that includes mourning, crying, pain, and death. After the millennium, there is no more mourning, crying, pain, or death. During the millennium, God's dwelling is not on the earth. God's dwelling is still in heaven. But after the millennium, heaven comes and rests down on the earth. And at that point, the old order passes away. A new order is ushered in. And there is no longer any pain, crying, sighing, dying, any of that stuff. And that's when the second descent of New Jerusalem comes. It descends from in the atmosphere, just above the earth, to down onto the earth during the millennial period. Part of the reason that heaven isn't going to be on earth during that thousand years is because there's still going to be sin. There are so many verses that talk about Jesus's government during the millennium dealing swiftly with injustice, dealing swiftly with sin. Well, you can't have injustice and sin being dealt with swiftly if there is no injustice and sin. During the thousand year reign of Christ, he is going to be working out the sin problem of the earth. He's gonna be governing and dealing with the sin issue across the earth during that thousand years. The big reason why the Father won't be on the planet while his, while his dwelling won't be on earth during that thousand years, it's the same reason from the garden to begin with. It's the issue of sin. Well, let's talk about that issue of sin and how it separates and what's happening here. Reading part A, top of page three. Gabby, thanks for getting me that water, wherever she went. Top of page three the major role that sin plays in this separation. Part A, the earth longs to be rid of wickedness. Romans 8, 19 through 22. I recognize this says all creation. That's true. Earth is part of all creation. I just want us to catch uh, the most connected part of the creation to us is the planet we live on. The rest of creation feels the same way about sin as our planet. It just so happens that sin is occurring on our planet. So you just have to imagine if planets can be mad, ours is the maddest because sin is actually occurring on our planet. All right. So I'm, I'm taking just a little bit of liberty here and saying the earth longs to be rid of wickedness, but it's really all of creation. Here it says, the creation waits in eager expectation for the sons of God to be revealed. That's talking about the resurrection and beyond. For the creation was subjected to frustration, a frustrated planet, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from the bondage to decay. Do you realize when sin entered the world, the world began decaying? Not only the world, but again, it, sin happened on the planet. The, the crisis point, the epicenter of the sin is on planet Earth. And it meant that the Earth became in bondage to decay and brought in into the glorious freedom of the children of God. We know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. <clears throat> Why do I bring this up? The earth longs to throw up sin and get rid of it. The, the earth longs to be rid of wickedness. It was a poison that has become an infection that has lasted long. And it says the creation is groaning to expel that sin. 
to expel that wickedness and to have things put into right order, if you can, or if I may, the way Jesus said it, the renewal of all things, the restoring of all things back to the way that they should be pre-sin, pre-garden, or, or, or the early stages of the garden before the fall of man. This is what the planet desperately wants, and there's consequences as long as sin is still on the planet. Remember, it was God that extracted man from his privileged position in the Garden of Eden when sin occurred. Because God said, I can no longer fellowship with you the way that I did before because sin has entered the equation. The planet felt that pinch just like the Father felt that pinch. And the planet has been longing for the restoring of that issue. Now, let's talk about some of the ways, and I'm not trying to be... um, Uh, theological here to go, this is how you get rid of sin from the planet. I am describing, I mean, purge it completely. The antidote is Christ, but that antidote has to be taken by everybody and everybody that won't receive that antidote has to be purged. Okay. If we're going to get to a point of restored order, it's not just that Jesus died. It's that that application of Jesus's death, burial and resurrection must then be applied. A person that hears the gospel and refuses it is not benefited by the fact that Jesus died. Okay? It's got to be received and it's got to be then implemented in the earth. Let's talk about some of the ways that that's going to happen. Obviously, the gospel. We, We know that. I'm now fast forwarding to the end of the age for some things we don't know. I'm now talking, touching some points. How do we purge the earth of sin? Because right now, the earth is still longing in eager expectation for this issue to be dealt with. And it hasn't been completed yet. Well, what are some of the ways? The battle for Jerusalem, commonly referred to as the Battle of Armageddon. Why do I bring this up? The most wicked men in history and the leaders of the nations those that are uh, the kings of nations, they're going to gather all of their armies outside of Jerusalem in order to attack Jerusalem, and their plan won't work. God is actually going to end all of them in a day. By that, there is going to be a significant measure of, at that point, the level of sin, because unfortunately, folks, it's going to get a lot worse. There is going to be revival. There is going to be glory. There's also going to be the increase of wickedness that is going to cause the love of most to grow cold. We are going to watch our culture completely lose its mind before this thing is over. When Jesus comes back, he's coming back to a planet that has fully proven its sinfulness. And that is the age of which we are living in and watching the snowball continue to turn. Also, The Lord is going to bring about mighty works of revival. We're going to see John 14, 12, greater works than these happening in the midst of the fallout of society. We're going to see people turning to Jesus. It is going to be glorious, but we can't say it's only glorious because it's going to be the worst time in human history at the same time. It's both. And by the time Jesus comes, the earth will be so much more sinful than it is right now. Man will have been creating ways to actually engage in wickedness at darker levels. At the final generation, it says that the primary sins of the final generation are murder, witchcraft, adultery, and theft, or or, uh, sexual immorality, and theft. That's unbelievable that those would be the normal things everybody's doing on the earth. And that's where things are going to devolve to. Why do I bring that up? At this point in time, right before Jesus comes and when he comes... There are going to be such wicked men that have walked in that Psalm 2 reality, shaking their fists at God. The nations will be raging. The nations will gather outside of Jerusalem. And God is going to imagine a a bunch of, uh, you guys ever played the game Risk? Imagine if the Risk board set up on the table and God just goes like this with his hand and just knocks them all off. And now the board's clean. God is going to do that with the armies of the earth in a moment's time. That is a significant, not full, a significant purging of wickedness in the final generation. What else? Well, right after that, Jesus is then going to deal with everybody else who's wicked that wasn't at the battle. Because it says that the armies of the nations are going to be at the battle, but that doesn't deal with everybody that's not in the armies. And that won't be 100% of the population by a long shot. Look what it says in Jeremiah 25, 30 through 31. And I just want to remind you, every time you read a prophecy that hasn't happened yet, it's still future. Real simple. God doesn't lie. Jeremiah 25, 30 through 31. 
This is the Lord uh, speaking about himself here. He will shout like those who tread the grapes. Shout against who? Against all who live on the earth. The tumult will resound to the ends of the earth. For the Lord will bring charges against the nations. He will bring judgment on all all mankind and put the wicked to the sword declares the lord this passage is describing the fullness of judgment god is going to actually bring about judgment to 100% of the wicked that's what it says all the wicked of the earth but that doesn't happen at the final battle it happens after the final battle and just in case you were wondering how he's going to deal with it he says he's going to put them to the sword this is the same sword that, God, that Jesus is using in Revelation chapter 19 that he pulls out of his mouth that he's dealing with the armies. First he deals with the armies, then he goes and deals with everybody else. This is going to be a significant purging of the earth of the wicked. This is a big moment that is a future moment in history. But the final rebellion is the one that tops it all off. Remember, the issue we're dealing with right now is how do you get God to put his tootsies on the planet? He can't do it so long as there's sin. He can't do it. And during the millennium, there will be sin. We know that because at the end of the millennium, that is the end of the thousand years, look what happens. When the thousand years are over, top of page four, the thousand years are over, time frame, after 1,000 years of Jesus reigning, Satan will be released from his prison that he was in for a thousand years, and he will go to deceive the nations in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. This sounds like sin, friends. Satan is going to go get a bunch of people to do something really, really stupid. And he's going to be successful after 1,000 years of Jesus ruling and reigning. That is proof the entire thousand years has sin in it. That right there. He's going to go and gather the nations. And it says in number, the ones that he gathers, the ones that he is uh, uh, able, he's actually effective in gathering. The number will be like the sand on the seashore. That's horrific. They marched across the breadth of the earth and they surrounded the camp of God's people, the city that he loves, but fire. But fire came down from heaven and devoured them. This is the moment where now the fire of God descends from heaven and comes and crashes down on all the people and destroys them. Now this moment, this is a really big deal because this is now the final purging. Huddle, you just got to leave the room. You can't, you, can't, you can't stay in here. It won't work. Okay. Fire comes down from heaven and destroys the entire people. Now, you want to think about this. This is now, after the thousand years of Christ's reign, you've now got, how many is like the sand on the seashore? A trillion people? We don't know. I mean, it's a ton of people. And, and population will explode during the millennium as at no time in human history. So however many the number is, let's just go with 10 billion. I don't know the number. The number will be like the sea on the seashore, each one of these is a representative of the fact of sin still. In one moment, fire comes down and destroys all of them and wipes all of them out. As soon as they're wiped out, now they're actually, that's the final test. And at that point, the earth has been cleansed and presumably all the ones that didn't come to that moment will get a resurrected body. We don't have verses that say that directly, but that's a pretty good assumption that those that don't come to that battle, that don't come to fight against Jesus, they will receive their resurrection at that time, okay? Now, at that point, you've now removed sin from the earth, you've removed sinners from the earth, and you've given everybody one last opportunity to rebel. They've all come that, that are going to rebel, and they've been wiped out, and now a new order, a new age has begun with the resurrection of all the saints. And now it says, and now God has made his dwelling with man, and there will be no more sighing, crying, dying, or death. The wages of sin is death, by the way. The only way you can get rid of death is if you get rid of sin. You can't have no more death as long as there's sin because the wages of sin equals death. So this is the first time that that's happened since the garden. Okay, 
Just a fun thought of Jesus being the forerunner. So think about John the Baptist going before Jesus. His objective is he is going to go and he's going to preach the message so that Jesus comes in his wake. Okay? Imagine the concept of in his wake. Think about this now. Jesus as the forerunner of heaven. Jesus comes from heaven and it's almost like he makes a vortex in his coming. And by that now, he's created a wake in which heaven can come to earth too. Just think about that for a second. Jesus as the forerunner of heaven. Let me just give you the the play-by-play of what's going to happen here. I'm in part B of uh, number four, Roman numeral four, Revelation 1-7. Look! He is coming with the clouds and every eye will see him. So just catch this. This is the moment of Jesus' return into the sky, okay? And now every eye sees him. The whole earth is captivated by him and their eyes are on him, okay? Jesus is the forerunner, but look what happens next. This is John really speaking on behalf of all of humanity on the earth in the future. He says, I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. Just imagine what person will be on earth that will not be paying attention to that spectacle. I mean, you might as well say, every eye will see it. Because if they don't see it day one, they're for sure going to hear about it and find a way to see it. So Jesus appears and every eye sees him. Then heaven appears shortly after. And if you will, every eye sees it. And it is now the praise of the earth. I mean, it's, it is now this most spectacle moment that's ever happened. But then look what it says. Then, that's the first descent. At the second descent, when Jerusalem, New Jerusalem, heaven, when it comes to rest on the earth, look what it says then. Look, God's dwelling is now among the people. He will dwell with them. He will be, they will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There it is again, eyes. Every eye connected to what's happening here. So first the eye sees Jesus. Then the eye sees New Jerusalem. Then the eyes are mended. The eyes are ministered to by the Father. And he says, your eyes don't ever have to see something bad again, ever. I am going to now completely remove that. And he connects this whole thing. Jesus is the forerunner. He's bringing heaven with him. And it comes in in these stages that we talked about. Next point, appearing with him in glory. This was the point this is Paul talking to the, uh, the New Testament churches. He's really, really talking to us, actually, because they didn't get to see this in its fullness. And he says this. He says, uh, Colossians 3, 4, when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. 2 Corinthians, he says in 5.2, Meanwhile, we groan, longing to be clothed instead with our heavenly dwelling. Now, what am I saying here? We're going to be appearing with Jesus in his glory. When, When this phrase was given, what Paul is trying to do is he's trying to help us to understand the beautiful layered reality of what it means when Christ returns. When Christ returns, it's we're going to appear with Jesus is in his glory. This is speaking really of two realities at the same time. One, that we're going to get to be in the environment of heaven with him. Because when he comes, he's bringing heaven with him and our eternal dwelling will be in heaven. So we will be with him in glory. But also it's speaking about our heavenly, our, our earthly bodies being transformed to be like his heavenly body. That's where Second Corinthians come in. Meanwhile, we groan. Groan for what? We long to be clothed instead with our heavenly dwelling, both the body and also the home, the city of heaven. We get to be with Jesus in glory. This is what he's bringing with him. It's not just the sights. It's the reality for the redeemed. That when heaven comes, that's when we finally get to be with him in glory. We get to be clothed in glory. We get to have our glorious heavenly dwelling. It's all because the forerunner is coming and bringing it with him. Now, part five, I'm just going to give you one minute on. I'll let you read on your own. Here's the gist of part five. No new information. Part five just lines up details we've already been looking at, but it does describe what it means when heaven comes to earth. What is life going to look like? What are some of the things that we're going to get to experience? One, father living on the planet. That's new. 
to joy in a way that you can't even imagine or describe, life in a way that has never been understood before, glory in the most, in its fullest sense, mankind experiencing glory day to day, healings, healing even to the point where there will be no more need for healing. Healing to the point where your body will experience such an upgrade of regenerative qualities that there will never be a need for healing again eventually. I mean, that's powerful healing. I cannot wait for that when that's the reality for everybody. And a peace, oh, I, I will spend a minute on this one. We're living in an hour right now where, I'm gonna just take a little side point. One of the things that I think all of us need to be equipped in, this is just an encouragement to you. You can choose to do nothing with this if you want. We need to get authority on our life to be able to pray the peace of God on a person that's totally freaked out. We need to get authority. We need to have prayed that prayer so many times and fellowshiped with the Lord so many times that we're able to pray for somebody that's losing their mind, pray for somebody that's demonized, pray for somebody that's in the midst of the Zanac generation, I mean, we are living in a wild moment right now where people are, are getting medicated like crazy. I'm not down on them getting medicated. I'm pointing out the hour we're living in is requiring more and more and more of that medication. People are getting, they're, they're getting so bound up and so uh, uh, anxious and stressed. This hour that we're living in, it is gonna be the most stressful time in human history. We need to be a people that get authority on our lives related to the peace of God so that we can pray that for people to help them think soberly. We can pray that for people and, and give them an out in the midst of all this that we would be the medication that the world is getting instead of the over-the-counter. I mean, we need to be figuring out how to get peace on our lives because this generation is going to undergo the most dramatic demonic upgrade of anxiety, stress, and the cares of this age. It is going to be so intense that it's going to be normal for people to be freaking out of their mind with anxiety and stress and fear and all those things. We're already seeing it. it just pre-pandemic to now, you already see a significant uptick. It's like, it's like the, the dial got, you know, went one degree on the knob. Now that knob's going to go a bunch more degrees before this thing is done. When heaven comes to earth and complete, total, utter peace is the rule of the day, it will be the complete opposite of what has been, the earth has been experiencing and enduring in the season prior. And so I just bring that to you as what heaven coming to earth will look like. Okay, at this point, we're going to break up into groups for some discussion. Luke, how many groups we got? So five to six people in your groups. And who are my group leaders tonight? Hands in the air if you would. Okay, Caitlin, can I get you to go here? Luke Fredenberg, can I? Actually, Luke, you go here. Caitlin, you stay right there. Luke Cooper, you stay there. Get into groups of five or six. Andy's in the back. Groups of five or six people. And if you would, hands in the air, leave them high just for a minute so people can see. So go rally around these people. Get in groups of five or six people. And uh, we'll have some time of discussion. Okay, excellent. All right, we'll go ahead and uh, transition now to group question. Uh, I'll repeat the questions so that we've got them for the uh, recording, as well as those that are watching online right now. Um, we'll go ahead and start over here. Yeah, so the question is <clears throat> really related to the culture of the planet right before the, the final rebellion. So at the end of the thousand years, Satan leads this rebellion, and he goes and he gathers a bunch of people. And we've got to recognize, and the question that was asked is, does everybody who's qual qualified as wicked, does all, do all of them, 100% of them, go to the battle? Or are there other wicked people that don't go to the battle and therefore don't get annihilated at the end time battle? The question you really want to be asking is actually one right before that, and that is, what is the climate of the earth right before that? Uh, right? I mean, at the moment Satan goes out to deceive, Jesus will have been leading the planet for a thousand years You'll have the majority of, uh, well, 100% of the population at that point. I, I doubt there will be anybody who will have made it the full thousand years and not died if they were part of the initial uh, tribulation period and made it through. They'll probably all have been dead by this point. Meaning, you've got 100% or real close to 100% of the human population of the earth 
has never experienced life as we know it. All they've known is Jesus Christ is the king of the planet. That's all they've known. They've never known a single moment of anything else. And it's been awesome. And there's like fruit from the tree of life and people get to eat it and the healing leaves from, from the, the tree of life heal people and, and, and Jesus teaches you know, in Jerusalem and the earth listens and he keeps making everything better. Every version of technology, he's got smarter ideas and all the earth has ever known is Jesus and his ways and the government under his orchestration. So the question of what about uh, do all the wicked go? I would actually challenge that thought process and go, the, the subject is, is really more, everybody still has a sin nature, but there is gonna be such speedy justice under Jesus's leadership that that sin nature will have been nipped in the bud so frequently, so quickly, that people will have not have acted out to the fullest expression of, their, uh, of what they could potentially have because we gotta recognize right now the role of sin and temptation and the rise of wickedness and wicked government gives license to sin in a way that it won't during the millennium. So. What I think is actually occurring with that final rebellion is less about all the wicked people. I don't think anybody five minutes before Satan gets released from prison would qualify themselves or their neighbor, neighbor would qualify them as an openly wicked person. I think that government will have been so established under Jesus' leadership and peace and all the enticing reasons to live right, love Jesus, do right, I think will have kept all so much of that at bay, especially by the time we reach 1,000 years into Jesus' leadership. So I think the question is less about are all the wicked at the final battle and more about are all those who can be enticed by sin enticed? And I think 100% of them will be. I think the ones that have it in their heart to disobey God will all go with Satan. Any of them that have got a, a, an accusation in their heart, I, we all have accusations in our heart, but hopefully we're telling those accusations to shut up in the name of Jesus. Those that have the accusation in their heart and they're fueling it, I think they're all going to follow Satan because they're looking for another option. So I think 100% of those that need to be judged, need to be dealt with, need to, that, that it will be part of that rebellion, I think it will be 100% of those that uh, uh, qualify for the judgment. Um, and I think that everybody else will have actually passed the test and gone, looked at Satan and looked at the option now for another God to follow. And they'll go, no, no, <laughs> no. And I, I, so I think that's the final uh, test. So great question. That's, that gets us thinking. That's great. Luke. Yeah, I think it's the second one. So the question is, uh, so when Jesus comes and, uh, you know, I was using the analogy that Jesus is bringing heaven with him, uh, but also bringing heaven with him with some time delays because it, he's actually bringing heaven with him in two stages. Uh, first is into the atmosphere visible, hovering over, new, over uh, earthly Jerusalem. And then the second is the final descent. So the question was, when Jesus appears in the sky, every eye will see him. Is he coming and like, you know, 100 miles behind him is heaven? Or does heaven still have a little bit of travel time before it gets to the earth? I think there's a little bit of travel time, and here's the reason why. Um, there are a couple of, uh, of points, and I could be totally wrong on this point. I mean, this, I could be totally wrong. Um, but I think based off of the way that John is seeing the picture, there's, there's nothing there that makes you think there's a giant war going on. It makes it, the, the, it's like John is brought up to this high mountain. Presumably, it's the Mount of Jerusalem or, or of Zion because at that point, all the other mountains will have been laid low and that one will have been raised up. And so presumably he's brought up on that and it's in a time of peace as in the final battle has already occurred. Um, the other, uh, you know, just, uh, just you know, thought process on this is that as Jesus is marching into the final battle, uh, it says that all of the angels of heaven have come out of heaven and they're riding with them. Um, the, the, uh, the language of Revelation 19, and again, I could be wrong, um, I think it gives a little bit of distance between what's happening with these armies that are emptying out 
It, it doesn't sound like, and again, you can go and read this on your own and see what you think. It doesn't sound like that we're looking at heaven opening and that we're watching everybody coming out. That doesn't seem to be the picture of what we're reading. It seems that they've come out of heaven and that they've made their way across some space, some chasm, some distance in order to make it to earth. I think that the, the subject of New Jerusalem descending... When John is told, let me show you the bride, I think the idea is that the, the battle has already been settled on earth and that now the bride of Christ, uh, uh, the saints, have now settled into the city, which is called the bride, and it's now descending, it's coming. And so I think that, uh, I think that that's the picture, but again, it's not one I've really thought all that well through. And so if you go back and look at those same verses and come to a different conclusion, oh, okay. So great, great question. Uh, Caitlin, let's do yours. Yeah, so kind of multifold question. So in Eden, um, before the fall, were they clothed in glory? They got clothed in fig leaves to hide their shame, uh, which was so telling of what just occurred because there was no shame a minute ago. They didn't even know what shame was. God had to ask them, who told you that you were naked? How'd you, how'd you figure that out? Like, I never used that word around you before. And... Uh, and then we're clothed in the resurrection at the end. So a couple of questions. Is there a parallel between clothed and clothed? I think for sure. Um, and that what's happening is we're being clothed uh, with a resurrected body um, that is, uh, is removing the, the former shame. But in there, whether by death or by uh, uh, being caught up in the air, there's that moment, again, death would do it too, of the ending of the old clothing, the old garment, the old order, and now the new clothing, again, either by you're there, and then you come with him when he comes and you get a resurrected body, uh, or you're, uh, you're, you're caught up in the air still alive, you get that new clothing. So I think absolutely the concept of uh, we were clothed there, we're clothed here, th th definitely the parallel. Now, as far as the, the pre-fall uh, reality of the human body, um, I think that the mystery of God's heart to bring everything together, I think, let me take one more step back. No matter how cool life gets, it's always going to get cooler once Jesus is in charge. So in a thousand years after the thousand years, it'll be cooler. And 10,000 years later, it'll be cooler. A million years later, it'll be cooler. It's only going to keep getting cooler and better. And Jesus will never run out of creativity. He's God. So I think that the very nature of constant upgrade helps us to understand that we didn't necessarily have a resurrected body before the, uh, before the fall. Um, there's, there's not any verse, again, another one of those arguments from silence, so it's a weak one, but there's not any verse that says that we had a resurrected body, and, and the, the concept of, uh, of us being clothed with the resurrection, I think, is part of our, our uh, upgrade that is uh, an eternal reward from following God in a fallen state. In fact, it's our primary eternal reward from following God in a fallen state. And so no fall, you know, that whole thing about you can't have, uh, you can't get rid of death unless you get rid of sin. It's the same subject matter. I think that the resurrected body was always in God's heart because he knew man was always going to fall. Um, but I don't think that in the garden we had resurrected bodies and we lost I think had uh, great bodies that had some incredible properties about them, uh, mostly that we were able to fellowship with God in no sin. And so by very virtue of the proximity and there not being the gap of sin, we got to experience all of the blessings of what being with God meant. You can't you just imagine if you're with God, you couldn't possibly die. Even the words of Martha or of Mary, Jesus, if you had been here, Lazarus wouldn't have died. I mean, that thought process, it's like if you're next to God, you're not going to die. And in the garden before there was sin, uh, you know, that there was not going to be any death in that capacity, but not necessarily because it was a resurrected body. So I, I don't know. That's, I, that's a good question. You know, these, are, these are good things to ponder. Uh, yeah. Okay. That's a great question. All right. So um, the, before I unpack the question, um, 
the, let's even go back to where we ended over here related to the reward of the resurrected body. And it says that, uh, oh, let's see, I'll, let me read it because I'll, I'll read it a lot better than I'll say it. Uh, this is Revelation chapter 20, verse 5. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection, blessed or holy, of those who have part in the first resurrection. The second death has no power over them. So we are told there is a second time that the resurrection occurs. This is the first resurrection. Blessed or holy, if you, if you are resurrected at this time, there is a second resurrection, but it's a ways down the road. How far down the road? A thousand years. So the second resurrection occurs at the end of the thousand year reign of Christ. All right, so the reason that all that matters for the question that Andy asked. So Andy said, okay, so somebody during the uh, millennium, they start following the Lord, they love God, it's great, they're living a great life. They live to 379 years old and die. Okay, so now they're dead. Uh, when they die, what happens? What, do, what does life look like for them? I think that the pattern that we have is that their life, just like ours right now, Theirs is going to look that same way during the millennium. They're going to be uh, living the millennium, eating normal, doing normal life, you know, having normal things under the, the, the curse of sin still in the millennium. When they die, it would be the same as though when you and I die now, if, if we died today before Jesus comes, we would go to be with the Lord in heaven, but we don't have a resurrected body. And whatever our interactions look like in heaven... And whatever our capacities look like, they're limited by comparison to what they'll be when we're clothed with the resurrection. Again, God's into this constant upgrade thing. He loves it. And there will never be an end to the upgrade concept. So, so for those that would die during the millennium, they would go to be with God in heaven, same as the rules now. They would not get a resurrected body, same as the rules now, until the next resurrection, which we're told exists, which is at the end of the millennium. And so then they would be looking forward to that blessed hope, if you will, or, or that moment of the resurrection, just like we are looking forward to the resurrection now. As far as what our lives will look like, interaction to them... I mean, speculation, but for sure there'll be interaction. I mean, they're not fake. It's not like if they're in heaven, now they're fake. You hear people now all the time having near-death experiences or dying, straight up dying and going to heaven and experiencing, meeting siblings they didn't know they had and having all kinds of crazy interactions. Well, they're having interactions with a real person that's not fake and they were able to talk and they were able to do stuff and they were able to prophesy. I mean, sometimes they'll, people will go up and have conversations with people up there and they'll come back with information they didn't have before. So, so in the same way, uh, uh, our interaction as a resurrected saint with one that's a disembodied spirit or they're with the Lord and they don't have a, a resurrected form yet, they don't have a resurrected body, surely there will be interaction. And, and really that term disembodied spirit I think is pretty nebulous. I think, that's, a, I think that's, that's probably not the best term because when people die now and go up there, they're able to see the person and recognize the person. And they don't come back talking about, and they were like a floaty gas vapor. They're like, no, I talked to John. Like, I, I know, you know, my whatever, that person that I know. They, they talk to them and, uh, and have interactions with them in a way that seems very much like how things are now uh, as far as the way that they're interacting with the person. And so I don't think that we need to be thinking of if you go to heaven uh, in this age, you are a gas cloud or something. I mean, you're still you. You don't have a resurrected body, and there is a bit of mystery there. What does that look like? I don't exactly know. But even in the interactions you were describing a minute ago, it was people that had space, time, form, and a voice. And so they were still a human. So, so it's not like if you go to heaven, you become less human. You become more human. You just haven't gotten your resurrected body yet. Uh, so there. Great question. Okay. This concludes this teaching from the prayer room. For more resources, please visit our website at tprdfw.com. Thank you.